All right, let me invite you to take your Bibles, and we are back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 today. So if you are using one of the Bibles in front of you in the seat, you can just flip to page 2. Page 2, we're still in the very beginning of things. I'll give you a second to turn there, shouldn't take you real long. Genesis chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 4. Read through the end of the chapter. So hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Man, there is a lot here. I'm just going to tell you that right up front. And this week as I was preparing this, I guess this is a non, I keep feeling like I need to talk into it. As I was preparing this, the thought occurred to me over and over again of 
what if we didn't have the book of Genesis? Like, what if we, <clears throat> excuse me, have our Bibles, but that book's missing? So then imagine that, like, you, you don't have everything that's in the book of Genesis, but then one day, just, this is a, an imaginative thing, okay, so bear with me, but one day we, we rediscover this book. We, we find this book, and we're sure that it's real and accurate, and we find this book that tells us about the earliest moments of human history. I mean, if, if there was a discovery made, and like all the news channels show up, like some part of the world in some long-forgotten tomb or something, they find this ancient scroll, and in it is records of the origins of the world, and the origins of humanity. How did they come into being? And Imagine that we found that. Can you even conceptualize the fervor that that thing would spark? I mean, it would be front page news on every website. Everybody would be talking about it. I mean, the, the excitement, the awe, the amount of study it would spark. If we found a document claiming to be from God that detailed how the world began. I mean, would it, if that just came to light, wouldn't you go get a copy as soon as you could and just pour over it, study it, read it, say, hey, did you see this? What do you think that means? What do you think that was like? over and over, just looking for answers to the biggest questions of life. Questions like, how did this all get here? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Why are some things so amazingly good, like sunsets and newborn babies and beautiful melodies, and why are some things in our world so incredibly broken and messed up? Why do people get married? Why do people die? Why is there evil in the world? Why do we treat each other so badly? Where is this all headed? And how do we get there? Well, guess what? We have that book. It's not, that part's not imaginative. It's in our Bibles, and it's called Genesis. And it deals with literally all those questions I just mentioned. Oh, and that's just the first few chapters of the book. So one of my prayers this week has been that as we lean into our study of Genesis and dig deep into God's word, that we would see what's true about our world. And that we would see that our maker has revealed all these things to us in his book. That we wouldn't neglect it or look elsewhere for answers, but he would give us eyes to see what's there and hearts to believe it's true. So this morning, our text, like I said, it deals with lots of big questions. We're going to try to mainly focus on three. So the three questions we're kind of going to tackle are, where do I really belong? What is my purpose? And what is God's design for men, women, and marriage? Now, any one of those could be at least a sermon, maybe a series, and there's no way that I'm going to say everything about them. So what we're going to talk about this morning is absolutely essential but it won't be exhaustive. The truths we discuss are foundational, but we will not cover them in full. Now, some of these things you're going to hear more about in the coming weeks. Like, we'll touch on them, and you'll hear more next week and the week after that. Some, maybe we'll hopefully get to talk about in small groups. You can dig a little deeper into those. But these are some great chapters where you can do some more digging on your own. And let me encourage you to study, to think, to read, to talk, 
I mean, spend time in these. Don't just read and close your Bibles. Like, think about what's there. Try to get your mind right. If you don't understand, don't just move on. Look up cross-references in the Bible. Those are those little letters connected to the verse. If you go over, there's other Bible verses. Those are called cross-references. They usually will say something that helps you better understand the verse you're looking at. Talk with other people. Talk with your friends and your family. Say, do you get this? Hey, what do you think about this? Is this how you understand that? This is a great spot in our Bibles to really press in and learn together, okay? Now, we're going to talk about a lot of big questions, but before we jump into those, look with me at verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This is kind of the banner over our section, okay? And what I just want to point out quickly to you is, there's a phrase in here that's really helpful for you as you're studying the book of Genesis. You see how verse 4 starts. It says, these are the generations. It says, generations of the heaven and earth. And this phrase, these are the generations, shows up 11 times throughout the book of Genesis. Just the next few, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 starts with, these are the generations of Adam. 6, 9, these are the generations of Noah. 11 times total. And these are kind of how the author is breaking up the book for us. Okay, now some of them are shorter, some of them are longer, but this whole book is about generations. The word in, in the Greek is actually where we get Genesis from. It's, it's a book of Genesis, of generations of the heavens and the earth, of this person, of this person, of this person. So today what we're looking at, see all the other ones have names. This one says the generations of the heavens and the earth. What is that all about? Well, it's because this is all-encompassing. This, this is all of our history of humanity. So this, these first few chapters, one through four, this is all of us. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at today. And to help you organize it, I think our text breaks down into three sections. We're going to look at a place in verses 5 to 14, a purpose in verses 15 to 17, and a partner in verses 18 to 25. This is all that God provides in the garden. Okay, so now let's take a closer look at the place God creates for the man. As we look at these verses, verses 5 and 6 set the stage for what's going to happen in 7. So look at verses 5 and 6. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So this, this is setting the stage. This is telling us what the circumstances are like before we get to verse 7. And the picture you see is one of this place where there's a lack of life and growth. It's somewhat barren. And the text tells us why. You notice that word for in there? It gives us two reasons why there's no life in this place. One, God hadn't sent rain. And two, there was no man to work the ground and help irrigate it and bring water to it. So without these two things, God's life-giving water and man's life-cultivating work, the land was barren and empty. But God had a solution. How is he going to bring life into this wasteland? Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. What's really interesting about how God makes man here is, is how involved God is in this. If you remember from last week in chapter 1, God speaks 
everything into existence. Let there be, and there was. Let there be light, there's light. It's all through speaking. Here, he forms and fashions man. God's like a craftsman here. The same word used is used for things like potters or ironsmiths. It's where they, they take a material and they, they fashion something into this work of art. And so what we're meant to see right off the bat is that like a master craftsman, God hand makes man. And what does he make him out of? Dust. Dust. And this is interesting because man has a really special connection to dirt all throughout the Bible. This is something that if you, if you keep this in mind as you read throughout the Bible, what you'll find is that we are formed from it, we work it, and when we die, we return to it. One writer said that dust is our cradle, our home, and our grave. And I love this paradox of humanity that you find here. Because on the one hand, we talked about this last week, we are the crown of creation. We are made in the very image of God to be his rulers on the earth. We are formed by God. Just think about that. That means no one is an accident because we are formed by God. And we are formed by our creator for him and his glory. Listen to what Isaiah says. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who forms you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, and then a little later, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. What a wonder to be formed by God. That's where you came from. Like you didn't just, you didn't roll off an assembly line. You didn't just happen into existence. You didn't just through this change and that change over time. You were formed by your maker. But on the other hand, lest we get carried away and start thinking pretty highly of ourselves, thinking like, that's right. I am formed by God. Look how strong I am. Look how powerful and wise and how much I can accomplish. We can't forget that at the end of the day, we're just dust. Glorious, noble dust. But God didn't just form and fashion the dust into a body. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that's when the man came alive. The breath of life is what gives us our life. This is, this is more than simply oxygen. Because we have tanks upon tanks of O2 in our world. Like we can, we can hook anyone, anything up to oxygen. But only God can give the breath of life. Listen to how the Bible talks about his breath. Isaiah 42 says, Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Job 33, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And in Psalm 104, when you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. We live because God gives us life and breath and everything because of the breath of life. 
And that's what he does for Adam here. He fashions him, handcrafts him from the dirt so that he is both humble and noble. And he doesn't just leave him there. He breathes life into him. Now, after God forms him from the dust, next he makes him a home. He creates a place for him. Look at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what I really want you to see here is this. The place God creates for mankind is a garden sanctuary. It's a place of beauty and richness where God's people serve him and God dwells in their midst. Now in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, here instead of garden, it uses the word that we get paradise from. And paradise was a word they had available that described a royal park. That's what was, so when the translators are thinking, what word do we use here to talk about this garden? Oh yeah, let's use the word royal park, because that's what it is. It's this place of luxury and pleasure for a king. And this paradise word that's used about the garden here is the same word that Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Something to file away and keep in mind. But this garden paradise is also a prototype. This paradise points us forward to other sanctuaries, namely the tabernacle and the temple and ultimately to the new earth that awaits God's people. There's a lot more, but I want to I point out a few similarities so that you see how the garden is a prototype for the tabernacle, the temple, and the new earth. First one, the garden faced east. How do we know? In chapter 3, we'll see that when they get kicked out, they get kicked out to the east. So the tabernacle and the temple and the vision of the temple that God gives to Ezekiel all mention they face east. Second, the garden is most likely on a mountain. How do we know that? I don't see the word mountain there. Well, one clue we have from our text is that four rivers flowed from it. Water tends to flow downhill. So we've got this spot of elevation where water is flowing down. And in case we weren't sure, Ezekiel describes the garden as being on, quote, the mountain of God. Well, is it any surprise that later the temple is built on Mount Zion? And in Revelation 21, the angel takes John to a high mountain to show him this city of New Jerusalem. So you've got this beautiful, garden-like mountain dwelling. Tabernacle and temple just happen to have wood carvings of flowers and plants so that it gave them a garden-like appearance. So that if you were to walk into the temple, you would see things that instantly your mind is, hey, this is the garden. As you walk in from the east into these holy places. There was a river that flowed from it. Notice in verses 10 to 14, these, these river, this ri- one river flows out from the garden into the world and it blesses wherever it goes, into these good lands. Well, what, is, what do we see elsewhere? Ezekiel 47 says, Then he, God, brought me back to the door of the temple 
And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. So there's this water, and if you follow it, it flows out. And what does it say? Everything will live where the river goes. So this river in Ezekiel flows out from the temple, from the threshold, flows out into the world, and everywhere this water goes, it brings life. Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Two more. You've got a similar structure. Here in Genesis, what we find is, I don't know if you caught this, one thing that's kind of surprising to us maybe is that we always call it the Garden of Eden, and that's fine, but it's not that Eden and Garden are the same thing. Eden is a bigger place with a garden in it. Notice that in verse 9, I believe, there was a, he planted a garden in Eden. So you've got this, the garden is at the center. Then you've got Eden. And then you've got the world outside of Eden. Well, in the same way, if you start in the temple in the most sacred space, you're in the Holy of Holies. And you move out to the holy place. And then a courtyard and the world beyond. Finally, there's a cherub to guard it. We'll talk more about this in chapter 3, but when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God puts a cherub, a special kind of angel, with a flaming sword to guard the way back into the garden. So, it's not a coincidence that the curtains in the tabernacle and temple that protected the way into the Holy of Holies had these same angels on them. So these are just some of the things. What I want you to see is that the place God creates for his people to live in is a garden sanctuary. It's the precursor to a temple, to a place where God's people serve and he dwells among his people. A place of life and beauty and goodness. That's how it starts in the garden. That's what we get glimpses of in the tabernacle and temple. And that's what we'll enjoy one day perfectly in the new creation. And notice how good this garden sanctuary is. It says, God causes trees to grow that are both pleasant to the sight and good for food. Just think about that for a minute. Like, I think sometimes we become too utilitarian or functional and think like, okay, God gives us what we need. Like, he gives us our daily rations. But God didn't have to make things pleasant to the sight. That serves no function if he was just interested in getting the job done, he could like, look, here's food. It's ugly. It tastes horrible, but it'll give you the nutrients you need. But he didn't do that. He says, oh, you're going to like this. I'm going to make this kind of tree. It's going to have these flowers on it. They're going to blow your mind. This one, this one's going to change colors, right? As the year goes on, he's going to think it's this one color, and then you wait a little bit, and it's going to get different. This one's going to go, they're going to go all the way a part of the year, and then they're going to come back again. Watch what I do with my trees. And he says, and they're good for food. Not just like, oh, you can, they're edible, but they're enjoyable. And the fact that God makes things pleasant to the sight should tell us something. That as surely as God made our stomachs hungry for food, he made our eyes and our hearts hungry for beauty. And God meets both those needs. He makes this paradise filled with both food and beauty for them to feast on. So this is a good, good place to be. 
So now that we see that God's planted this garden as in Eden as a place for the man he created, this sanctuary of beauty and bounty for his people to enjoy, now he gives the man a purpose. A purpose. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God prepares a place for man, then brings man into the paradise he's prepared for him. And when he puts him there, he gives him this mission. He is to, quote, work and keep the garden. And this is really significant on two levels. First, God gave Adam work to do. And it wasn't punishment. This is still before the fall. There's no sin in the world. God's not saying, because you screwed up, now you have to go to work, Adam. This means work is not part of the curse. Now, we will see later that the curse has made work difficult, but work itself is good. In fact, you were made to work. It's not just something you tolerate so that you can get on with what you think you were made to do. It is what we were made to do. It's part of God's good design for human life. Second, the work that God gives man to do is really, really important. When it says that Adam is to work and keep the garden, that means on one level he's both to tend it and cultivate it, that's working it, and he is to guard and protect it, that's keeping it. In other words, he is both a gardener to help it grow and flourish, and he is a guardian to keep it safe from anything that would threaten the goodness of it. But what's really significant is where else you find those two words together. These two words that we see here translated as work and keep show up together in one other really key place. Often translated as serve and guard instead of work and keep, they're the same words used to describe the duties of priests in the tabernacle and temple. Listen to Numbers 3. It says, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. Same words. Keep, work. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over all the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. A little bit later, he says, And you and your sons with you shall guard your priesthood for all that concerns the altar and that is within the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood as a gift, and any outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Maybe file that away. So just like priests were to serve God in the holy place. Okay, so we, we kind of have an understanding of the temple, tabernacle. You've got these priests They are to serve God in the holy place and guard it from the presence of anything unholy. Well, here we see that Adam and Eve were to serve God in the garden, cultivating life and keeping out anything that shouldn't be there. They were to serve as priests in the garden sanctuary. And remember what God said back in 128. He told Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, And have dominion. So, in other words, he's saying, look, as image bearers, God made us to rule over his creation. 
So what happens when we combine these two things from chapter 1 and chapter 2? The two tasks that God gave man in creation, man is to be a king and a priest. Interesting. What happens when God frees his people from slavery in Egypt to take them to a promised land of bounty? What does he tell them their new role will be? Exodus 19.6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So in other words, saying, hey, Israel, you now get the job Adam failed at. But Israel fails as well. And so when Israel fails, Jesus comes as the perfect king and priest. So that now it says whenever we trust him, Peter tells us in Christ, you and I are a royal priesthood. And in Jesus, we are restored back to our original purpose, ruling over God's world as his image bearers and serving and guarding in his sanctuary. See, Adam's task was to start in the garden and work outward to fill, subdue, and cultivate the rest of the world to be like the garden. To take that good thing that God had made. That's why he says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It wasn't like leave the garden behind. It was take the garden with you. Expand the borders of the garden so that all this goodness just moves outward and outward and outward. And keep it safe from anything that shouldn't be in there. So what do we do? We start in the church. Serving to help it grow and protecting it from evil. And seeking to watch the gospel move outward from us to fill and transform the world. As God's redeemed people, we are still gardeners and guardians. We are still kings and priests. Now in verse 16, we come to the first commandment God ever gave mankind. That's huge. I mean, anytime you can say the first blank in the history of man, I mean, that's a big deal. Here you got the first commandment God ever gave man. But it's not what you might think. See, if I were to give you a quiz, my guess is most of you, if you knew a little bit about your Bibles, say, what's the first command? You'd say, ah, I know this one. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you'd be so close. But that's not what it says. The first command is actually, you may surely eat from every tree in the garden. And in case you're saying, I don't know, is that really a command? In the language, it's the exact same type of word as a command. So God's saying, the first thing I want you to know is your first command is eat freely. Look at these trees that I made. Oh, they're good. You're going to like that one. That one's really juicy. That one's got a little sour, but you might like it. They're so good, and you need to eat. I'm commanding you, eat freely. I made them for you. Feast, delight, enjoy. Small parentheses. There's one tree, though, you need to stay away from. They're all yours except one. And that one I'm telling you to stay away from for your good. Because if you eat of it, you'll die. What we need to see is that, as one of my professors used to tell us, God gave them one no in a world of yes. This is who our God is. He provided all they could want and need. He said yes to every other tree. But what we tend to focus on is the one thing God forbids. And we do this all the time. God made a world of pleasure for us to enjoy, yet when you ask most people what they think about being a Christian, 
What, what does it mean to be a Christian? What, what does it mean to be godly? Most often you hear mainly about what it is they don't do. Well, if you want to be a good Christian, you don't blank, you don't blank, you don't blank, you don't blank. We focus on the no instead of the world of yes. God gave Adam and Eve this massively big purpose. I mean, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion, work and keep the garden. That's a huge purpose, but he says, to help you with that purpose, I also give you abundant provision. I'm giving you everything you could want and need. Now let me say a little bit about these two trees. First, there's the tree of life. Eating the fruit of this tree leads to life. And we're going to say more about this tree in a couple weeks. So I'm going to not say much more than that. Other than to give you a teaser to think, often I think we just assume that to eat from the tree means instantaneous, you live forever. That's not what the text says. And I would encourage you to, to keep looking and consider does it mean you live forever with one bite? Or could it be the continual eating gives you continual life? We'll come back to that. I just want to want you to have some conversation at lunch there. But I want to say a little bit more about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What is the knowledge of good and evil? And there's no way I'm going to tell This is where I spent most of my week, friends. I'm not going to lie. I, it was good. Man, there's so much more to say. And think about. Some people would argue that what the knowledge of good and evil means, that it means to determine what is good and evil. So in other words, what Adam and Eve did wrong is that like they tried to acquire the power to determine, say, that is right, that is wrong. I think there could be elements of that. But I think it has a little bit different flavor to it. I think what we see is that it has more to do with a mature wisdom that is able to rightly discern and distinguish between good and evil. Not determine it, not declare it, but to discern and distinguish between good and evil. Here's why. Let me give you a few places in the Bible why I think this works. In Deuteronomy 139, little children are said to lack quote, the knowledge of good and evil. So there's something that, that kids, when they're young enough, they don't have this kind of knowledge. Isaiah 7 seems to be building on this when it talks about before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So there's something that little immature people don't quite have. In 2 Samuel 14, a woman tells King David that he is, quote, like the angel of God, to discern good and evil. A few verses later, she, she goes on to say, My Lord has wisdom like the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So knowing good and evil is apparently not just something that God has, because we says, you know, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, but apparently it's something that angels have as well. And when this woman sees David, she says, Oh, you remind me of the angel. The way that you can tell the difference between good and evil, you're like an angel. 1 Kings 3 brings both these ideas together. God tells Solomon, ask whatever you want. You're going to be my king. Tell me what it is you want. And Solomon says, I am but a little child. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, 
that I may discern between good and evil. Two verses later, God connects that to wisdom when he says, Behold, I've given you a wise and discerning mind. So Solomon says, If I'm going to rule, if I'm going to rule this kingdom for you, God, what I need is knowledge of good and evil to say, That must be right, that must be wrong. Not to declare it, but to discern it. And just to make sure we're on the right track, if you remember from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5, it takes these ideas of immaturity and the ability to tell the difference. Hebrews 5 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So what I'm trying to get at here is this knowledge of good and evil is the understanding to rightly discern and distinguish between what is right and wrong. Good and evil. That's what this knowledge is. So, how should Adam and Eve have known what was good and evil? Say, okay, if they weren't supposed to eat the fruit, and, keep, and please be clear, I'm not saying that they were ignorant in their decision, but they didn't have a mature understanding of what is right and wrong. So how should they have known what was good and evil? Well, it's simple. Through the word of God. God told them what was good. I've given you every tree Eat from it. And he told them what was evil. Don't eat from that one. And had they listened to him and his word, they would have matured in their knowledge and rightly understood good and evil. But what they did wrong is they sought an understanding of right and wrong apart from God's word. Rather than heeding God's word, they tried to understand and discern good and evil on their own. And this is what we all do. When we sin, we seek to evaluate and discern good and evil and form our own ideas of what's right and wrong based on something other than God's word. We see that something looks good to us. That it looks like that, that makes us wise, just like we'll see the fruit next week. We find ways of understanding life and choices that as we hear them, they're like, yeah, that, that makes sense. You read that article online or you hear your friend talking about this new idea, this new lifestyle, and you think, yeah, I guess when you put it that way, yeah, that does make sense. But they're not in line with God's word. And whenever we seek to evaluate right and wrong apart from God's revealed word, we reach out for the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This, as we'll see more of, is the essence of sin. We discern right and wrong apart from God's revealed word. Over and over again in the Bible, what do you see God getting upset about? It's when people call evil good and good evil. And the penalty for this act of, dis of looking elsewhere to discern right and wrong, it says in our text, is you will surely die. That is why we need Jesus. Because we've all reached for the fruit. But because Jesus perfectly served God and kept his word and then died the death we deserved, 
we can now be welcomed back into paradise and once again have access to the tree of life. We can go back to the place God prepared for us and once again fulfill the purpose he created us for. We're going to talk so much more about that in the next two weeks. I'm going to leave that there. Now as we come to our last section, we find that God not only provides man food and pleasure and place and a purpose, he also provides a partner. Look at verse 18 with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So after all the goodness that God has seen and made in his creation, remember chapter 1, God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. God saw and it was good. Now he notices something not good. Something's missing. He says it's not good for man to be alone. And God doesn't leave him in his aloneness. He says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make a helper fit for him, corresponding to him, appropriate for him. Then God, the next thing, if you've read, if you're reading this for the first time, it might befuddle you a little bit like the next step. You're like, okay, so next he's going to make woman. Not quite yet. First, God brings all the animals to Adam. You're like, what in the world? There's a point here. He says, I'm going to make a helper. Then God brings all these animals so that Adam can name them. And this is important for two reasons. First, we see this allows Adam to do his role as head over creation by naming the animals. This is part of that having dominion. Remember we talked last week, naming shows headship. God names creation to show his headship over it. He called it day, he called it night, he called it heaven, earth. And now Adam names the animals to show his headship over them. Second reason this is important is that Adam's, as Adam's naming these animals, he probably starts to realize, hey, you know, the more I'm doing this, there's like two of those tigers, and they like kind of go together. Like they're, and they're both tigers, but they're different. But they fit together. Huh, same thing with elephants, man. Wait, everybody's kind of got this match. We're, I don't have one of those. What if one day God made me a match? What if, what if I wasn't the only one like this? What if, what if there was a, a, a matching pair? I wonder if God would ever do that for me, someone like me. So after Adam names all these animals, no match, no helper that was fit for him was found. So he didn't just say, he didn't come across a dog and say, that's all I need. Man's got a dog, like that's, that's it, we're good. He says, no helper was fit for him. So God made him one. He puts Adam into this deep, almost death-like sleep, takes a rib from Adam's side, which he then fashions into a woman. In other words, he takes Adam apart so that he can make something new and put him back together as something even more glorious. And when Adam wakes up, he finds that while he lost a rib, he gained something far more precious. He has the partner he longed for, the helper who is fit for him. So how does Adam respond to this realization? In the first recorded words spoken by a human being, Adam rejoices with this is either a song or a poem. That's why it looks a little different in your Bibles because it's, it's poetic. We don't know if he said it or sung it, but he just bursts out and says, basically, she's come from me. 
This is flesh of my flesh. She's bone of my bones. She's made out of, out of me. She's like me, but, but not me. She's from me, but we're different. What should I call her? What should I call her? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, there's a lot we can unpack here. First of all, you say, well, why does he do that with the naming thing of woman from man? Well, he's probably doing the same thing he saw God do because in the Hebrew, the word for ground that Adam was taken out of is Adamah. And so what's Adam's name? Adam. He's saying, oh, I get it. So because I'm from the dirt, Adamah is to Adam. The woman is Ish and Isha. He's saying like, oh, I get it. Connected words show that these are related but not the same. He's learned from God how to name the world he inhabits. But beyond that, in verse 24, we see that when God puts back together what he's separated by joining man and woman, that's marriage. And every marriage since the garden involves separating, right? That's what it talks about, leaving father and mother. So that one family is separated to make a new and more fruitful union. Now, there's a lot more to say about that, but I'm going to close here with some implications of how God created man and woman here. Okay, and I'm not going to say everything, and I hope that there's a lot of conversations to follow this up. That you, If you have questions or you want to talk more about it, talk to me, talk to one of the other elders, talk to each other. But we need to see some implications of how God created man and woman here. Because it's no small thing. This isn't just one story among many. This passage right here that we're looking at is why the Apostle Paul will tell us later in the New Testament that pastors must be men. This passage. This passage right here is why Paul will also tell us that husbands are the head of their wives. Why, what is his basis for his argument? He says because Adam is created first, then Eve. Look at 1 Timothy 2. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. And he says the other reason is because Eve is made from Adam for Adam. The order is important in the Bible. You say, well, what difference does that make? Like, it doesn't matter whether you think it's important. It matters whether the divine author thinks it's important and therefore forms the basis of his argument for how we order our families and our churches. Let me just say, I don't think it's a coincidence that all this talk about genders and roles and understanding them comes right on the heels of the basis of how we determine what is good and what is evil. Our determination of right and wrong, we're tempted to say, like, I'm going to look elsewhere to see what should be right and wrong. And he says, no, it's right and wrong because God said it this way. So if we don't understand that God has created men and women in a certain way, in a certain order, with certain distinctives, the Bible's later commands won't make sense. You'll think, well, that's just random that he said they can do that and they, they should do that. But God is showing us his good design here. He's showing us the pattern. And what we see here is that man and woman are created equal, but different. And those are both really important. Equal, but different. They're equal in the sense that both men and women are created in the image of God. Because of that, they are both equally valuable in God's sight and equally possess dignity and worth. 
And I can't say that loudly enough or strongly enough. But equality doesn't mean sameness. Those are two different ideas. Men and women are given distinct roles to play by their creator. Adam, we see, is given headship over his wife. We see this in the fact, first of all, I said that man was created first. We see it that Eve was created from him and for him. And by the fact that Adam named the woman. This headship takes the form of protection, provision, and sacrifice for her good. You need to hear that the headship does not imply harshness. There's a great quote that I, I cut out because I didn't think I had time and I wanted to use it anyway. I'm going to butcher it, but the, the Bible commentator Matthew Henry had a great line talking about how woman was made from man's side to show that she is his equal. Not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be walked on by him, but from his side with his arm, from underneath his arm so that he can protect her and close to his heart so that he can love her. Now that's Matthew Henry, that's not Bible, but I think he's on to something there. So you need to hear that headship does not imply, like that does not entitle men to treat women any way they want. That's a distortion of it. And we're gonna talk, you're gonna see this in the coming weeks. So that's part of the fall and the fallout of the curse. But Adam's headship means he is to labor to guard her and help her thrive by serving her and giving of himself the same way he's to guard and serve in the garden so that it thrives. And when he does this, his wife will flourish and grow and be holy. And Eve, as his wife, is to be his helper in the purposes that God has given them. Remember, this is all in the context. God gives him this purpose. Work it, keep it, fill the earth, subdue it, and then looks at the one he assigned the task to and says, yeah, he ain't pulling that off by himself. It is not good that man to, for him man to be alone. So he needs a helper to come alongside him. And we need to know that in the Bible, helper does not imply inferiority. In our culture, sometimes we minimize it. Like if you put the word assisting, you're like, oh, so you're like, you're down there. That's not a biblical category. The same word for helper is often used of God as our helper. It means that she helps him by supplying what he lacks, by being what he is not. It wasn't good for man to be alone because for him to carry out his purpose, he needed a helper, someone who was like him, but different. And what God shows us in creation is that he made men and women equal in value, but different in role. And this is in no way minimizing or denigrating to women because it's the same thing we see in God himself. In the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God. There's not varsity God and JV God. One is not more God than the other or holier or more perfect. Or They're all equally God. But even though they're equal, they're not the same. And they play different roles. The Son submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and Son. And it's beautiful. And it's filled with love and joy. So why would God make marriage any different? He says, you want to enjoy the best, most life-giving, joy-filled relationship? Let me model it on what I'm like. Because I'm full of love and joy. That's how God designed marriage to be. And we have to get this 
This idea of men and women and the way God made them equal in value but different in role because it's about more than just marriage. It's about the gospel. Because when Paul wants to talk about marriage, he goes back to this picture in the garden. You know this passage, but listen to Ephesians 5 and listen with Genesis 1 and 2 ears. Paul writes, The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I think Adam would have gotten that. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he just flat out quotes our text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul says marriage is a picture of the gospel. And the roles in marriage are based on the creation account of man and woman in Genesis 1. In other words, this is massively important. And as we talk about gender roles and understanding what it means for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, we need to be clear. We are not talking about traditional views. I I can't tell you how clear I need that to be that we don't believe what we believe about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman because it's traditional. I'm not at all interested in the way things have been done. I care about the way things God says they ought be done. And that is what we're looking at here, is we're not looking at the history of any one culture. We're looking at God's word and how he says he designed it to be and how he designed it for our good. Because marriage itself and the way it works in terms of men and women relating to each other is not a human invention. And it's not a cultural development that has changed and transformed over time. It's based on God's design. And it's based on God's design before there was sin in the world. So you can't point to it and say, well, yeah, it's God was trying to make the best of the broken situation. No, this is the good design. And it points us to the ultimate marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So as we close, Genesis 2, what do you see? You see a beautiful garden paradise. You see God's image bearers serving him in the sanctuary. And a marriage where God brings the bride to the man and the man rejoices over his bride. Guess how your Bible ends? With a beautiful garden city, with God's image bearers serving him, and a marriage where God brings all his redeemed people to his son, and the son rejoices over his bride forever. We need to get this because this is is where we're headed. And if we start fudging and misunderstanding things, we won't won't have the hope. God means us to give us hope. So hang in there. If you have questions, like I said, I know this is big stuff. We want to talk about big stuff. I don't want you to figure out your views of the world out there. I want you to figure them out in here with your fellow brothers and sisters sitting around God's word. 
So it's okay if you have questions. It's okay if I said something you're like, I don't know about that, Dan. Let's talk about it. As long as we can have coffee while we're doing it, I love that. And I mean that. So let me pray, and then let's sing one last song to celebrate this. Pray with me. Father, these are massively big truths, and I want to be appropriately fearful in approaching your word, lest we get it wrong. So God, would you, would you guide us and guard us in our understanding of your word? Father, where we have other views, would you conform us to what we see in Scripture? Where we have gone beyond what is written, would you bring us back? Where we have not lived up to what is written, would you lift us? And God, where we are rightly thinking and believing, would you make it that much more joyful and life-giving? Help us believe it all the more. God, we thank you for your good design. We pray that you would help us as your people to live it out. Help us be good gardeners and guardians in the world around us. Help us to serve in your sanctuary the body of Christ. Help our marriages to be filled with the right pictures of Christ and his church. Lord, as we said earlier, we we say again, Lord, we need you. To do all that, we need you. And so we thank you that you've given us all we need in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.